Hi FM. You're listening to 101.9 Hi FM. This is the new Blue Review, and I am Benji Shulman. Welcome to the program. If you are listening on HiFM.com or 101.9 Hi FM, you're listening live. Or if you're listening to us on the Jerusalem Post or on iTunes, welcome to the show. It is good to be with you for our new slot, the New Blue Review, a podcast looking at Jewish current affairs and politics around the world. And uh, we have a cracker of an interview for you today, an absolute uh, great, great uh, scholar and gentleman, I might add, uh, who's agreed to come on the show and talk about uh, issues that are going on. Uh, you may have heard of a group called ISIS, and uh, in the last while, they have been making their way, it would seem, onto the African continent. And so we are looking to see, is Africa going to be the next growth point in terms of ISIS and its various affiliates, a number of issues coming up in the last few weeks, of course, a terror attack on Eilat, uh, with ISIS, which ISIS claimed, and also Libya, uh, the Italians sounding the alarm about ISIS growth over there. And with us to discuss the topic, we have Professor Hussein Solomon. He is from the Political Studies and Governance School at the University of Free State in Bloemfontein, uh, South Africa. He is a world-renowned scholar on the topic of a variety of different issues, including religious fundamentalism and international peace and governance. He also holds positions at the London School of Economics and uh, in Jerusalem as well on the Muslims, Muslim in Africa uh, studies. Am I pronouncing that correctly, Professor? Yes, it's research on Islam and Muslims in Africa over the acronym RIMA. RIMA. Okay, so uh, certainly uh, there's actually a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, the professor in, is included in including defense studies and international relations. Uh, very, very uh, well-versed in the topic and has recently come out with a new book called... Uh, ISIS and the coming global confrontation. So we'll be able to talk a little bit about that book as well. Professor, thank you for coming on the show once again. Before I get into this, I always want to be on the right side of the semantics because that really can uh, get you into all sorts of trouble. If, uh, you know, if you're Barack Obama, you never ever say the word Islamist uh, and that gets you into a lot of trouble. Some people don't like to say, they call it the so-called Islamic State. Some people just refer to it Daesh. What, what is your opinion about the correct way to even talk about this topic? Well, certainly, um, uh, and, uh, in terms of my book, I talk about uh, uh, the fact that ISIS or Islamic State actually is Islamic. Uh, I talk about the fact that it is Islamist also in the sense that it represents uh, 300 years at least of uh, uh, political Islam um, uh, being traced back to uh, um, uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, and thinkers like Al Wahhab um, and the emergence of the Salafi position. Okay, so for you, there's no problem calling it ISIS. Uh, this, that's not something that you are particularly concerned about. No. No, absolutely not. So I think if you were then a member of the Western world, depending on where you politically sat, you might consider 2016 to have been a good year or a bad year, depending on if you were a Trump supporter or an Obama supporter or Brexit or not, but certainly a year of change in terms of the Western world. But on the Islamist front, there seems to have been perhaps some rolling back, particularly in Syria and Iraq, 
of uh, ISIS and, and some of its affiliates. Uh, but as I said in the introduction, some worrying trends looking into Africa, uh, not just, of course, with ISIS, things like Boko Haram uh, and uh, on the West Coast, Al-Shabaab. If you were an Islamist in Africa, Professor, how would you say that uh, 2016 looked and uh, what would you look forward to, so to speak, uh, in 2017? Look, if I was um, an Islamist in in Africa, I would be extremely ecstatic. Um, yes, there are reversals uh, in the case of ISIS, as in Iraq and Syria. They've lost about 50% of their territory. Uh, there's talk that by the end of the year, they would lose their de facto capital, Raqqa, uh, and so on. However, they've been expanding rapidly uh, elsewhere. Uh, from uh, from Thailand to uh, Jakarta to, of course, the U.S. and and Europe, uh, and especially in terms of Africa. Um, in in the case of Boko Haram, uh, they have uh, pledged their allegiance uh, to ISIS. Uh, in the case of its North African franchise, despite setbacks in terms of Syria in Libya, they have been going stronger. Also in places like Tunisia and Morocco, um, and of course there's a faction of Al Shabaab in Somalia or East Africa, which has also pledged allegiance to ISIS. We know, for example, that um, that that ISIS also has a presence in South Africa, um, and that South Africans have gone abroad to uh, go and fight and die for the cause of ISIS. So. Uh, what makes Africa particularly vulnerable, if I was an Islamist and I would feel ecstatic, is the fact that African governments are so utterly useless in protecting the citizens, in protecting their borders, in terms of corruption, uh, which, which, which provides them with ease of access, in terms of the ease of access that they get weaponry, um, and the fact that the African Union is an utterly useless body. Right, so that yeah, certainly is a, a bit of a depressing uh, idea if uh, you are someone who's been focused on ISIS in the Middle East to see it spreading in Africa. I, I want to focus on the two most recent incidents that have been playing out, these ones that have been reported in the last couple of weeks in Libya and particularly the Sinai. Uh, the Sinai does seem like a bit of a strange example. The Egyptians, uh, for better or worse, have been running a, quite an authoritarian regime uh, since the fall of Morsi and uh, have been particularly pushy on security. Why are we suddenly seeing the Sinai becoming a hotspot for terrorist activity like ISIS? Well, I mean, if you just look at the geography in terms of the Sinai, it's extremely difficult to uh, police, um, to patrol. And what you don't patrol, you, you just cannot control. But there's another dynamic there, and that is the whole political dynamic. As you know, the Ikhwan al-Muslimin, the Muslim Brotherhood, of Morsi was uh, pushed out of power. Um, and a lot of people from the Muslim Brotherhood, which essentially shares the ideology of ISIS, okay, um, if you go back to the teachings of people like Sayyid Qutb, um, uh, have actually been disenchanted with trying to secure power democratically. Because let's be frank, the Muslim Brotherhood did win power at the ballot box. I think they were extraordinary incompetent once in power. Um, but nevertheless, they, they expected themselves to finish that mandate until the next election. And those of them who were unhappy with, uh, um, with, um, with Al-Sisi uh, grab for power, 
many of them went and joined up with Islamic State. Um, and this has stretched the Egyptian authorities uh, in ways that they couldn't imagine. Yeah, and I suppose part of that would be the issue of uh, the Sinai and their next-door neighbors in Libya. Now, does this also mean that Islamist movements like ISIS are going to start encroaching on other groups like Boko Haram or Al-Shabaab? Uh, are they sufficiently different that uh, they, you know, that they have to operate or under different brands, so to speak, or uh, is are there real theological differences between the different groups that are already operating on the continent? Okay, it's uh, a very complicated question you ask. First of all, many of the groups which uh, were formed, the so-called Islamist groupings in Africa, were were actually motivated by local grievances, right? So if you take Boko Haram, if you look at the poverty rate in the north, it is um, you know, two and a half times more than in the south. Of course, the south being dominantly Christian and the north being Muslim. Then there's the House of Fulani and Kanuri question. There's the ethnic question as well. And they're feeling left out of power and so forth, despite the fact that the current president uh, Buhari is a Muslim northerner. Um, then you uh, see the same dynamic in terms of Mali, where you have Ansar al-Din, or defenders of the faith, making common cause with al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Um, and, and, and they are initially motivated by uh, uh, local grievances because they are Tuaregs, and the poverty rate is like 92% in the north, vis-a-vis 60% in the south. In the case of Al-Shabaab, it is largely the Rahanwain clan in Somalia feeling left out of power. So you have all of these local groupings, okay? And government in Africa do not respond by, by reacting inclusively with good governance, minimizing corruption, uh, building wells, schools, and, and trying to provide jobs and reskilling the youthful population. Uh, when these people then take up arms, Okay, and what unites them, of course, what they stress the things which unite them, one of the things is Islam. The governments, of course, turn to the West in particular for armaments and so on to fight it. These groups then go and look for other people to support them. So in the case of, if you, if you take the Libyan franchise, um, uh, when you had a Libyan group there fighting, uh, Islamic State tends uh, a few of the battle-hardened commanders to actually uh, 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 provide leadership to the group, uh, provide them with some logistical framework, uh, some weapons, uh, but 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 very uh, particularly the leadership. So Islamic State operates opportunistically, exploiting local grievances in Africa uh, in order to expand their franchise, right? Um, and so when you want to fight them, not only do you have to use military and intelligence means, but you also need to understand the local grievances uh, driving the group. We're speaking to Pro- Professor Hussein Solomon. This is the New Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman on 101.9 Chai FM and Chai FM.com. Stay relevant and up-to-date. This is 101.9 Chai FM.
Now, Professor, one of the things that uh, you mentioned is this nexus between terrorism and uh, development and state formation. Uh, how serious an aspect is this, you know, as opposed to just the military option, which I do want to talk to you about, you know, about removing ISIS uh, how important is it to actually provide the sorts of developmental needs Africa and perhaps other third world countries have in terms of undercutting the ability of these groups to proliferate? It is absolutely crucial. Um, when you look at these groups, uh, as I explained to you just now, many of them are motivated by the fact that they are marginalized socioeconomically and so on. It's no coincidence that if you look at the failed state index, okay, uh, the states exhibiting the highest characteristic of state failure, okay, and therefore they have ungoverned spaces which they don't control. They have a population which is hostile to their own governments and so forth. Those states is where the slums are making a bigger gain. Somalia, for example, uh, has been number one in terms of the failed state index. And as you know, that had it not been for Amisom, the African mission in Somalia, the Somali federal government would have collapsed and Al-Shabaab would be in control there. Now, certain um, groups, uh, uh, if you look at the U.S. government, for example, and if you look at the United States African Command, they, they uh, have internalized these lessons. So they talk of the three Ds, okay? The three Ds being defense, diplomacy, and development when approaching these problems. And so you need to have more comprehensive approaches, but very importantly, long-term approaches to dealing with these issues. This in turn means that you don't just simply have the military. So the military comes into an area, and for example, they push Al-Shabaab out. Then what it needs to happen is development agencies, so for example, your World Bank, uh, your African Development Bank, etc., must come in and start building wells and, and clinics and provide training to people and so on. When it's not done, uh, it creates the space for Al-Shabaab to infiltrate back into that area. It's very interesting because we actually have, uh, according to some of the research that you've done, some quite nice examples of how this militaristic approach, which is needed uh, in some instances to remove ISIS, when done in the right context, can be a, a successful model for groups that are you know, trying to fight the terrorist threat. You've written quite extensively, for example, on Mali and what happened there with the French and the, the coup there that precipitated the sort of uh, Islamist insurgency over there and how it was removed. Could you tell us a little bit more about the conditions in Mali that perhaps we need to look at replicating when trying to root out some of the terrorist activity elsewhere? Well, initially, Mali was an abject failure because Captain Amado Sanogo uh, staged a coup against his own government. But I am kind of sympathetic toward the, the young captain because uh, his own government was corrupt. Um, the uh, government that he staged a coup against, um, for example, uh, was starving the military of funds. Uh, you couldn't get a, a position in the Malian military without having um, you know, an uncle or a cousin uh, in the military would actually get you a job. So it wasn't the best people going into the military. The other thing was that the levels of corruption also entered into the military so that arms wasn't even coming to the Malian military. Um, another aspect, of course, was the fact that the government of the day 
was actually colluding with the Islamists, with Al-Qaeda, and so on, in terms of uh, drugs, uh, 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 moving drugs and actually benefiting from that. Um, so when, when, when the French intervene to uh, the request of the Malian government, uh, to prevent the South from being overrun after uh, Ansar al-Din and al-Qaeda in the, in the Islamic Maghreb rapidly uh, got hold of the three cities in the north, which was Timbuktu, Gao, and Kidal, and then was moving their troops to Mopani, uh, at, um, uh, to, to Mopti, uh, towards the capital, Bamako, the French Foreign Legion intervened, and subsequently the French have maintained their presence not only in Mali, but in West Africa generally, and they're working with various uh, regional armed forces. Now, one of the problems in terms of a military response is the fact, firstly, that African militaries, uh, they're not properly resourced, they're not mobile enough, and that issue of mobility is absolutely crucial when you're fighting asymmetric warfare. In other words, guerrilla hit-and-run tactics. Um, the issue of intelligence, and specifically human intelligence, is absolutely crucial. And you will not get that human intelligence if your people are antagonistic towards the government because it's corrupt, because uh, it, it does nothing for its people, and so on. So the issue of WAM, which is central to military doctrines, for example, which the Americans learned coming from Vietnam, WAM meaning winning hearts and minds, is absolutely crucial as well. Um, so, so uh, the African militaries need to move away from trying to win conventional battles because these these are not hit and run um, attacks. I, I mean, I mean, these are not conventional set piece battles. These are hit and run guerrilla wars, warfare style, and the uh, African military is not well resourced enough. But more importantly, it's not technical enough. In order to do this. Now, moving away from the military aspect to perhaps your first D, uh, where you spoke about, oh, that's defense, but uh, uh, diplomacy, you've been quite outspoken on the need for almost a Cold War style counter-propaganda movement to help unseat IS. A number of points that you've made is that even if we were to destroy IS uh, or indeed any of its affiliates anywhere in the world, the problem with the military is that it doesn't destroy the idea, which is uh, fairly uh, difficult to actually uproot from people's mental universe if they're sort of particularly interested in it. So I'm quite interested in your uh, thoughts about how you could rage wage a proper counter-propaganda war against these sorts of groups, especially given their proliferation on the Internet and the use of social media? Mm -hmm. Look, first and foremost, I don't think it is actually uh, in the military terrain. This is not the role of the military. What I do believe, though, and this is very important, um, that I think that Muslims themselves need to be assisted in terms of waging such a warfare. Um... And I think it is crucial because Islamic State does make use of the Quran. It does make use of the Hadith um, in order to justify whether they're going to decapitate some Coptic Christian in Egypt or whether they're going to uh, plant a bomb somewhere or uh, or capture Yazidi uh, uh, woman as a sex slave. And, 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 and so you need to engage with them at that level. And at the same time, let me be very pessimistic about this, and I hate to be this. This is not something new. 
the Americans are doing it, uh, the British are doing it, uh, various other countries are doing it, including the Southeast, which I think is a bit of a joke, uh, given their own ideology. But having said that, one of the problems where it gets discredited in terms of Africa, for example, is the fact that uh, uh, the majority of Muslims in Africa are Sufi-oriented, right? And they subscribe to this more mystical view of Islam, which is less political, certainly not militant, and so on. But why is people like uh, Boko Haram and uh, Al-Shabaab and ISIS gaining adherence in Africa? Because these Sufi preachers are actually too close to the government, okay? Uh, they're seen as, as being co-opted by corrupt government. So it's absolutely crucial that such imams and so on engaging in de-radicalization, preaching a different message, saying, no, Islam is a religion of peace and this is not love and so on, that they remain critical of their own governments in terms of their corruption, their, their lack of democracy and so on, that they remain critical of the West, uh, uh, etc. as well. In other words, that they maintain their independence. Because once they lose... So I think what is needed is a, is a, is a critical Islam, but not a militant Islam. And uh, if you co-opt Islam where it, uh, where it simply behaves as your praise singer and, and not speak in terms of the uh, needs and the concerns of ordinary Muslims in a particular country, those people are going to lose their credibility as well. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM at chaifm.com. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review. And we are speaking to Professor Hussein Solomon. He is a political science professor at the University of Bloemfontein in South Africa. And we've been discussing a variety of issues regarding ISIS and specifically, specifically, excuse me, uh, their role in Africa and uh, asking the question, can Africa become the next growth point for ISIS and what do we need to do to stop it? If it is. Stay relevant and up to date. This is 101.9 High FM. Now, Professor, I want to take you up on a couple of these points that you've been talking about in terms of this idea of the the Reformation, I guess, uh, of Islam. A lot of people have said that, in some respects, this issue that Islam is going on as a whole sort of mirrors what happened in Europe in, say, uh, the Middle Ages or, or the Renaissance or, you know, periods uh, just after that with the religious wars between the various Christian sects that sort of had to get rid of the the, the exceptional military and um, the militaristic aspect and the, the, the non-separation of church and state and those sorts of factors which led to Christianity in particular becoming a much less... Uh, violent religion because it had to work its own issues out. I mean, do you think that's a fair comparison if you look across the Islamic world today? I think it's a fair comparison. Um, Islam at the moment is uh, roughly the same age as when Martin Luther put his 95 thesis on Wittenberg Chapel and started the whole Protestant Reformation. Um, And certainly there are several uh, Muslim scholars uh, calling for such a Reformation. Um, when it comes to, for example, issues of women's rights, when it comes to issues of uh, 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 treatment of non-Muslims, when it comes to issues of homosexuality, etc. Um, but at the same time, 
there are some remarkable differences. You see, when this thing started, when the affirmation started, um, you had certain Christian monarchs who may not have been religious, but who were trying to uh, uh, be more independent of the Holy Roman Empire and the Vatican. And remember in those days that the Pope controlled armed forces and so on. So they had their own interest in supporting such a reformation. I don't see it in terms of of Muslim leaders today generally. Um, the example that I often use is uh, that of Malala Yousafzai, a young uh, Pakistani um, teenager uh, who uh, was just wanted to read and write and wanted girls to go to school. And she was shot in the head by the Taliban, as you know. She was fated in the West and, and eventually given the Nobel Peace Prize. But there's been very few. Uh, in fact, I know of no Muslim leader standing by her. Um, so, so, so these reformers are not given any support. In terms of both Bangladesh and Pakistan, you have um, Muslim writers, secular Muslim writers, who've been killed. Um, uh, uh, in South Africa also, you have academics such as myself, who have been threatened to be taken to court, who have been threatened with their lives. You have others uh, where a pipe bomb was planted outside their house in Cape Town uh, and who are now in the U.S. Uh, um, uh, and, then, and then you have another fortuitous uh, uh, set of development in terms of the Reformation in Europe, where you had, uh, very soon after the Reformation started, you had the the Industrial Revolution, right, which started a middle class. And that middle class, of course, saw uh, uh, their own independence and their own growth and their, mobi- their own mobility being linked uh, um, uh, to the separation of church and state, pushing for tolerance and, 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 and such stuff. When you look at the Muslim world, you're also looking at world, let's be frank, which is economically backward. Okay, uh, just look at the uh, number of patents filed by Muslim countries each year. Okay, where is their Bill Gates? Where is their Zuckerberg? <laughs> okay, um, there is no one there. And so, what you need to buttress this uh, uh, theological reformation, uh, the Islamic reformation, but you also need political development and economic development to support that, and I actually don't see this happening, which is why I have a very pessimistic title in terms of my book, talking about the coming global confrontation, being that between uh, uh, radical Islam and liberal democratic values. Yes, I mean, I certainly understand the point uh, you're making in regard to the economics of the thing. But there are Muslim countries that are, uh, I would say, have that economic... uh, backing if you like but then they they tend to also be very authoritarian i'm thinking here about some of the central asian states that uh, that that have kind of got the economics right but not the politics and then the ones that are perhaps more secular don't have the economics so there doesn't seem to be anywhere uh that that has really kind of got the golden mean of getting the the two correct no absolutely i mean and the question is right i mean and it's also interrelated and it's mutually reinforcing right so so when we talk about the very conservative, look, I 
attended limos earlier this year in Johannesburg, right? And an American rabbi started it off by asking, why are there so many uh, Jewish scientists receiving um, uh, the Nobel Prize in Physics and, and so on? And he gave the example of this one Jewish physicist when he was asked, why was he, uh, who, who does he thank for him, uh, for his achievements? And he said his mother. And when the journalist asked, why your mother? He said, well, whenever I came back from the show, you know, my mom asked me, did I ask good questions, right? Now, when I think about myself attending Madrasa as a young kid, uh, we were just taught to vote learn. Uh, we couldn't ask the imam or the molana uh, or the sheikh uh, questions, okay? Now, when you are drilled in that rote learning, how can you uh, question uh, ostensibly God's word? How can you question uh, the fact that one plus one is two and so on? How do you do this? How do you create an open democratic space when that is your basis, right? When you have democracy uh, being about, about accountability and questioning and so on. So you're not going to have an Islamic reformation. You're not going to have political openness. You're not going to have technological advancement. Okay? That's what you have. And when you do look at those Muslim countries who are ostensibly doing well economically, take away the oil and what have you got. More importantly, if you go visit Dubai and stuff like that, you have a lot of expatriates there. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. This is the New Blue Review, and uh, we're talking with Professor Hussein Solomon. He is a politics lecturer at the University of the Free State in Bloemfontein, South Africa, and we are discussing IS Africa and everything in between. Professor, having said all of that that you said in the sort of pessimism perhaps that you have around this idea of the Reformation, the other argument that I have seen in terms of a sort of short-term dealing with terrorism, infrastructure, etc., is to go in the other direction. Argument being that perhaps there are mild versions of uh, Salafi thinking, uh, highly conservative forms of Islam that perhaps don't do well on rights, gender relations, that sort of thing, but are nonetheless not violent uh, or aggressive. And some uh, uh, analysts that I've read have argued that perhaps this is the other way to sort of deal with terrorism is to provide uh, uh, or support rather Islamic groups that uh, have a strong identity, are suspicious of the West, uh, all of these things, but at the same time are not that prone to high amounts of political action. Does that seem like a a reasonable approach as far as you're concerned? Look, to be honest with you, I am a bit too minded about it. There is some evidence to support that position. So, for example, there was an MI5 study that the British uh, intelligence services conducted. And uh, that proved that people who actually knew the Quran better uh, they um, and and who spent more time at mosque and so on, and therefore was more aware of the nuance. Okay, uh, they were less susceptible um, towards joining militant groups. Okay, and of course the study was was uh, entirely focused in terms of British Muslims. Um, and of course, if you look at France and if you look at Belgium and so on, and the recent period that that's there, you certainly found people. Uh, who were criminals, uh, who got radicalized while they were jailed. So they were petty criminals, they were radicalized, 
in jail. Um, and then they, um, uh, with their little uh, two cents worth of Islam, felt that they knew what Islam was all about and they had to kill infidels and so on. But, but, there's, but there is another side to this as well. Uh, when you have conservative Islam, not radical Islam, but conservative Islam, and what you still have, though, is them, let's call it ISIS light, because they do subscribe to a, a very stark contrast of the world, black and white, between Dar al-Islam, the place of Islam or the place of peace, and the Dar al-Haram, which is the place of war. And that these two sides are constantly at war with each other. Um, it's certainly what you have that in terms of Saudi Arabia. But, but, but when you don't deal with the fact that the regime, which is in serious trouble, by the way, in terms of the drying up oil revenues, in terms of the uh, re- uh, various tensions inside, the royal family, and so on. Uh, when you don't deal with people's um, basic needs, okay, uh, when people don't have a vested interest in interacting with the uh, political class, uh, when they have real grievances, economic grievances, and so forth, I think that conservative Islam will then mutate, and you'll have new groups being formed. So even if you have an ISIS defeated, Raqqa falls, Khalif al-Baghdadi is killed, a new ISIS will emerge. And that is what my book talks about. There's been an ISIS for years. Um, uh, I'll, I'll give you the, the example of Boko Haram. Uh, uh, Boko Haram draws its roots to the uh, jihad of Uthman Dan Fodio in 1802. And over the years, from 1802 till the present, there's always been an Islamist militant movement in northern Nigeria. In Somalia, you've had wars between Muslims and Christians going back to uh, the 15th century, okay? <laughs> and you had a militant Islam from that period onward. So you can't talk about the ideology without talking about context. So in terms of, uh, you mentioned the, the, the Saudis and uh, some of the things that I've read suggest that the Saudis do have something to answer for, particularly uh, in the way that they interpret Islam and its sort of aggressive propagation in the continent and in the, the rest of uh, the, the Middle East. Uh, but there have also been suggestions that the House of Sword itself, the actual rulers of, of, the, of the country, have started very, very gently to, to try and get rid of the influence of the Wahhabis, at least over the royal house. Uh, there's been suggestions that they've started to protect cultural sites a bit better than they did, uh, some, some issues around women's rights and voting. Is, is that considered a good change, or, or, or is it just window dressing? Look, I think that if they actually, look, there is tremendous tensions inside the House of Saudi. Um, you have Saudi Arabia, for example, and this sort of results in contradiction. So you have Saudi Arabia, for example, um, uh, being part of the U.S. coalition against ISIS in Iraq and Syria. But the same Saudi Arabia uh, is supporting various Islamist militants in Syria because they don't like the Assad regime. Uh, the same Saudi Arabia, one of the princes was now caught, I think, in uh, Beirut with uh, lots of captogen tablets which was being supplied to ISIS so that the fighters can fight day and night without sleep. Um, <laughs> um, 
So, I mean, this is the contradiction. And please remember that you go to the grand bargain in the 18th century when uh, when you had the Saudi lineage is actually uh, uh, interlinked with they, they, they are they are intermarried with the children of uh, of Al Wahhab. Okay, the ideology justifies the rule of the House of Saud. If Wahhabism is banished, the House of Saud would fall. Okay, there is little glue holding that society together, also along clan lines and so on. Um, and don't forget, talking about Africa, the very very negative influence that. Saudi Arabia has been having um, in terms of Africa. For example, if you talk about Boko Haram, uh, even uh, the the Ibn Al Tamiya schools that Muhammad Yusuf, the founder of Boko Haram, established, the money came from Saudi Arabia, and the first recruits from Boko Haram came from there. Uh, Al Isla, which was which was funded by Saudi Arabia, its uh, graduates uh, uh, occupied key positions within first the Islamic Courts Union and then Al-Shabaab. <laughs> and the list goes on. I won't even talk about the Taliban in Afghanistan and Pakistan and, and, and. Um, it's bad news, right? Uh, you certainly are a very uh, bottle of lights, uh, <laughs> Professor. Now, talking from uh, f- from away from the Islamic aspect for the moment, you know, the, the West is not irresponsible in terms of what's been going on here. Now, what do you think factors like the election of Trump and uh, other aspects within the Western world might contribute to sharpening this particular issue, as you say, this, the coming confrontation? Look, I think that for a long time, you remember that when George Bush announced his global war on terrorism, what <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was named, uh, many Muslims said this is not a war on terror, it's actually a war on Islam. Um, and... Personally, I should tell you that I actually don't think that George Bush meant it in that way, George W. Bush meant it that way. You would remember that immediately after 9-11, one of the first visits he made was to a mosque where he said this is not Islam, talking about the 9-11 terror attack, standing with Muslim leaders. Um, Unfortunately, with the election of Trump, uh, there is some uh, truth. Uh, to the statement that this is not a war on terror, but a war on Islam generally. Because in terms of his travel ban, he made no uh, distinction between uh, good Iraqi Muslims and bad Iraqi Muslims and so on, okay? Um, uh, But I also think that much broader than just Trump. I think that when you look at the rise of popularism, I'm talking about the alternative alternative for Germany. I talk about the real Kent National Front. We uh, talk about the five-star movement in Italy. We talk about Khayat Bilders. We talk about Brexit. Uh, There is a disenchantment to the status quo. I travel a lot. uh, uh, And when you talk about the Occupy Wall Street movement, and when you talk about um, all of these things coming together, uh, young people in particular have lost faith uh, with the status quo. The, The American dream that my... Uh, dad uh, was, uh, uh, you know, a plumber, and I'm going to be a medical doctor. That each generation is successively better with hard work and net and died. And so, what you find, interestingly enough, especially in terms of the West, where there's so many ISIS cells, is that 
is that ISIS is not only recruiting from Muslims, but non-Muslims. Um, there's the case of, um, I mentioned in my book, I forget the name now, a 45-year-old punk rock, uh, uh, um, rock musician uh, who's an atheist who converts to Islam and is suddenly playing, uh, playing a key role in ISIS's cyber caliphate, pushing out ISIS social media, uh, YouTube videos, tweets, Facebook, etc. Uh, there is a popular disenchantment with the status quo. It's not working. GDP, uh, so it doesn't matter if the GDP in the U.S. is going up when ordinary people are doing two or three jobs in order to put food on the table. Um, and, I, and, and so Khalif al-Baghdadi becomes the new Che Guevara. Okay. Um, and so ISIS is also recruiting from non-Muslims. So in some respects, you see ISIS and terror and these sorts of things as not just a purely a Middle Eastern problem, so to speak, but actually part of this global disenchantment with, with the status quo. Absolutely. Um, you know, um, you see this uh, more and more. Uh, one of the figures, I, I was in the Netherlands and I was interacting with some security officials there uh, last November. I mean, they are pointing out uh, that 22% of, uh, of the plot in the West, uh, uh, in terms of ISIS, is actually have non-Muslims at the core. Uh, uh, people who uh, are either Christian or agnostic or atheist, and they suddenly join up with ISIS. How did this happen? Okay. Um, so, so we need to acknowledge this. And this is a, a far bigger problem then just, well, uh, uh, let's get the military go to go smash them and let's use our intelligence agency to hunt down these sleeper cells. Yes, well, what you need, that absolutely. But you also need, uh, I mean, when you look at the fact, when you look at not just simply Trump, but if you look at Bernie Sanders and the, and the rejection of Hillary Clinton, it's a rejection of the status quo, okay? Uh, it's not working for them. Uh, the British political class, with one voice, uh, didn't matter if you're a Labour politician or a Conservative Party official, with the exception of your Boris Johnson, uh, who's a bit of a maverick, uh, spoke with one voice for Britain's role within the European Union. But the people voted against it. They went with Nigel Farage, right? And we need to accept it. And I don't really see this on the part of Western politicians, the soul-searching that the current order is just not working. We need to go back to the drawing board. Now, if I was to say to you, all right, uh, you know, Professor, I hear all the criticism and the, the issues. Let's say that uh, your institute in Bloemfontein, we're going to give you $1 billion and uh, we're going to ask you to create a program to make your contribution towards, uh, towards overcoming this particular problem. What would be the first thing that you would start to do to, to at least make steps uh, in, 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 let's call it the right direction? Firstly, I would say this to you. I wouldn't be arrogant enough that even a billion dollars and, and, and an institute in, at the University of Pacific can actually do much by itself. I think the key is network. Just like ISIS network, uh, uh, I think we need to network. I think that uh, there needs to be some smart partnerships between, uh, between government, the business community, and civil society. 
uh, we've already touched on a bit about what Muslim charities can do and what civil society can do, but we haven't really spoken in this interview about what the business community can do. If you take the facts, I mean, you talk about 198,000 police officers, and let's not talk about the fact that uh, they've been implicated in, in much corruption and there's tremendous mismanagement and they are inept at the job for a second. Let's just talk about 198,000 police officers. Uh, uh, the equivalent in the private sector is 1,898,000 uh, private security officers, right? Uh, surely we can see that as a force multiplier. The business community, for example, um, uh, at, at, at all shopping malls, you have CCTV cameras. Those CCTV cameras can also be the eyes of our intelligence community. There's a smart interface between these two sectors. Take the pharmaceutical industry. They can play a key role in terms of uh, developing antidotes, in terms of chemical warfare, biological weapons, uh, which may be used and so forth in a, a, a possible terrorist attack. So, first and foremost, I would say to you that there need to be these things, these link-ups set up between government, private sector, uh, and civil society. Everybody needs to be on the same page. Uh, you need to ensure that uh, information uh, reaches policymakers timelessly, that there are no bottlenecks. Um, that it is, it is, it is fast-tracked. Issues of eradicalization has to be, uh, pushed, uh, to the fore. Uh, at the same time, uh, you need to listen to the narrative in terms of grievances. And you need to be working with groups like the World Bank, uh, uh, like the IMF and so on in terms of responding to such grievances. Um, uh, uh and again, uh, ensuring that uh, businesses take the lead in terms of developing and that security agencies play a key role in protecting uh, uh, those uh, businesses. I think also you need to have uh, unrelenting war uh, in terms of any such uh, radicalism. Um, because when you have groups espousing this, they may not necessarily be violent. But immediately, there needs to be mechanisms, on the one hand, to start a dialogue with them, but on the other hand, to ensure that they understand the very, very negative consequences of any violent action that they may pursue. In other words, deterrence. Okay? Um, you know, I was in Cape Town when there was the Planet Hollywood bombing, followed by the urban terror campaign conducted in Cape Town during the 1990s. I honestly thought that the South African government would stop its nonsense of one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. I honestly thought that this was an eye-opener for the government to take action. But I don't really see this happening. Um, periodically, you find the, uh, that there's a paramilitary camp which has uh, been discovered. Uh, but there's no action taken by the government. Why is there no political will? Okay. These things need to be pushed and pushed hard. The deterrence value has to be put in place. That, that, that the consequences for engaging in such behavior would be serious. Uh, I don't see that coming from the South African government. It's a free-for-all. Uh, uh, so you have Hamas, you have Hezbollah, you have Boko Haram, you have Al-Shabaab. 
you have ISIS, you have Al-Qaeda operating on South African soil, and this is a no-no. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, certainly a, an interesting set of policy options and tools. Professor, if people want to read your book, if they want to get some of your works and, and understand your thinking on this topic, how can they get hold of them? You know, uh, uh, look, my first, uh, what my first book regarding these issues, specifically pertaining to South Africa, was published by um, uh, Sun Media, and you can get the e-book or you can go to any exclusive books and actually order it. It was called Jihad in South African Perspective. The two um, uh, books, uh, uh, which were, uh, I published one in 2015 called Terrorism and Counterterrorism in Africa, and I published Islamic State and the Coming Global Confrontation were published with Palgrave. When I asked the exclusive books why they don't have it, they said to be that it's too expensive. Uh, um, so, but you can buy the ebook, but if you go to an exclusive books and you order it, they will, uh, uh, uh bring in the order from Palgrave Macmillan. I should also maybe tell you, that I've just published uh, a book uh, uh, th- this month with Professor Jim Hens from the Virginia Military Institute in the U.S. on Boko Haram. Uh, and that has been published in Rutledge, uh, from Rutledge, but it will only uh, be out uh, um, in April. And, that, and those sorts of books I imagine available on places like Amazon and that sort of thing as well? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, there you go, Professor Hussein Solomon. Thank you so much for joining us, giving us some insight into uh, Islamic State, Africa, and the kinds of things that we're going to have to do if we want to stop this thing. Professor, thank you so much for your time, and carry on with the good work. Thank you for your time. That brings us to the end of the new Blue Review for this week. Thank you so much for uh, having uh, joined us on the show today. And uh, we're looking forward to having other people who are coming into the uh, program onto the station in the next while. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to, to chatting to you about it. Uh, if you want to connect us with the, connect with us rather, you can get us hold of us on Twitter, uh, at FM, that's the station Twitter handle, or indeed at Benji underscore Shulman, that's uh, my Twitter handle. Then, uh, you can also, uh, email us, a new blue review at chaifm.com. Uh, so yep, great to have been part of the show. Super interesting. And we will see you next week on the new blue review. Stay relevant and up to date. This is 101.9 High FM.